Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Podularity of 2009, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Raymond Tallis, described by the Times as the Lennox Lewis of the intellectual world, a formidable heavyweight. Before becoming a full-time writer in 2006, Ray was Professor of Geriatric Medicine at Manchester. But in fact, he's long been a polymath, with interests that include literature, culture and philosophy, as well as science. I spoke to Ray on the phone last year about his latest book, Hunger, in the new series, The Art of Living, from Acumen Publishing. The book is an essay not only on our biological hungers, but also on our infinite variety of appetites and desires, from sex and religion to music and recognition by our peers. In the book, Ray says, the history of humanity could be described as the gradual loss of a biologically prescribed plot. I asked him how that had come about. It starts pretty early. I mean, it seems to me that even within the context of seemingly purely biological hunger, we transform the way in which we respond to hunger. There's a huge distance between, as it were, grazing as animals do and sitting down at the dinner table. Even within feeding our biological needs, we've already moved quite a long way away from the biological givens that other animals work within. But we have, we have tried, particularly in the, in the 20th century, to understand what those biological drivers are, haven't we? I'm thinking about the, the um, experiment in Minnesota in the 1940s where uh, people were, were put on starvation diets in order to study the effects of, of hunger on their, their whole metabolism and their, their personalities as well. It's a very humbling thing, isn't it, when you see what happens to any of us when we are deprived of food. And we may think we transcend as it were, the biological givens, but it's certainly the case that those biological givens have a, an authority over us uh, which is not matched by anything else. I think it was Brecht who said, grub first, then ethics. And mm. one could add, grub first, then aesthetics. Uh, and, uh, and as I mentioned in the book, I wouldn't have been terribly interested in writing the book on hunger if I'd been deprived of food for much more than 24 hours. And you move beyond, you know, you, you deal with the, the physiological appetites for food in the, the, the first couple of chapters. But as you say, your project is to move beyond that and look at hunger as a driver for all sorts of different human activities you use as a sort of, well, there's a sort of first order uh, physiological hunger, but then there are second and third and fourth order hungers. Yes, I mean, even, as I sort of mentioned, even the physiological hunger is utterly transformed in us. And one of the incidental features of hunger is the pleasure of satisfying it. And that pleasure itself then becomes almost a primary consideration. And so in the second chapter of the book, I talk about hedonistic hunger or the hunger for pleasure. And that extends way beyond food. We spend uh, much of our time, as it were, satisfying, developing and nurturing our appetites, or at least those of us who are lucky enough to live above subsistence, protracting the pleasure uh, that we initially get from satisfying basic appetites, such as those for food. And it's interesting to look at how complex are the ways in which we transform the pursuit of pleasure, which may have some kind of biological origin, but is certainly has only a tenuous relationship to biology by the time we've finished uh, pursuing pleasures of various sorts. It seemed to me that there was a very very deep ambivalence about hunger running through the book, that it could be both enabling and crippling, and it could be creative and destructive. And 
that you you made a lot of the tension between those opposing forces in its in its role in in shaping human uh, civilization. Absolutely, I mean discontent of all sorts is both divine and a driver to greater achievement and to transforming what we are. At the same time, it can be profoundly destructive. Uh, One of the curious things, I think, about human beings is that we have a hunger for each other, which is not actually matched in the animal kingdom. And Mm. I think that animals obviously pursue each other uh, sexually uh, for obvious purposes, dishing out the DNA and so on and so forth. But for us, we have a profound hunger to be acknowledged what we are in ourselves. The philosopher who has helped us to understand that more than any other is Hegel. Humans are self-conscious, and a self-consciousness can only be satisfied by another self-consciousness, not by some object that isn't conscious of it. And I, I think that that is, is, is another strand, uh, the way in which we are desperate for acknowledgement by others, which is, again, uh, both elevating, makes us do things we wouldn't perhaps otherwise do, but at the same time potentially very destructive. A sizable part of the book is you, I suppose, weighing up art and religion and science and philosophy as ways of of satisfying these higher order hungers. And it seemed to me that art, to put it crudely, maybe sort of came out on top in terms of what you felt intellectual life could could offer by way of satisfaction. Is that is that a, a fair generalization to to make? It depends in many ways what form of higher or spiritual hunger one's trying to satisfy. And certainly art uh, addresses one particular problem, which is that we sometimes feel we don't experience our experiences, uh, that the things we hunger for, the things we desire, don't actually deliver uh, what we imagine they're going to deliver. And mm. art does that uh, it, it, for a variety of reasons. One is that it actually uh, reunites an experience and the idea of the experience, particularly in, in, in music. It does satisfy that. One of the problems is that our experience of art is episodic. We go to a symphony, we read a book, we read a poem, and we look at painting. And so, although I um, put art pretty well near the top, it still falls victim to what I call the dominion of and. You know, and then, and then, and then. And it doesn't probably satisfy our need for a life that's coherent, that has a meaning that's sustained from day to day, from week to week, and so on. And I look at other ways in which that might, might, might be achieved through, for example, committing oneself to a project or to um, being committed to making a big difference in the world, a positive difference in the world through doing good and so on and so forth. The other thing that art offers, but perhaps religion also uh, offers, is some way of rounding off the sense of the world. I mean, we are burdened as human beings with the desire to make some kind of coherent sense of our lives, a sense that will counter the feeling that ultimately things are meaningless and our position in the universe is very insignificant. Religion does answer to that. The problem with religion is you can't so requisition it off the shelf. And there are a lot of things that come with religion that one doesn't like too much, including perhaps some some, uh, views of the world that are ill-founded or uh, codes of ethics that perhaps one wouldn't, wouldn't subscribe to. You say at one point, art unfortunately does not bring our hungers to an end. And I, yeah. I, wonder, I wondered, though, if perhaps that's not part of its attraction, because that it, it doesn't, it seems to me, lead to that feeling of emptiness that other sort of satisfied desires can lead to. Um, it sort of extends a possibility of future enrichment from the, from, the, from the work of art that hasn't been completely emptied out by, by the experience of it. I mean, do, do you think... 
Yes, I mean, I think in many ways, art will say, look, be as great as this, think as uh, widely as this, be as imaginative as this. It, in a sense, it makes demands of us. Uh, and so, it, 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 precisely that, it leaves us uh, still hungry. Because well, one of our great fears in life is that we'll run out of hunger. Boredom is the hunger for hunger. The sense that, um, you know, the abyss opens up, abyss of meanness opens up, and it's only six inches deep, which is just what one feared. Um, so there is that kind of, art does offer a sense of potentially an endlessly unfolding hunger. But it still has the problem that it is, tends to be episodic. Few of us can be, feel that we are... Uh, in a, in a state of artistic um, elevation, continuously. Yes, it's not. It's not. It's not for most of us the fabric of our, our life. It's something which is, is a pleasurable sort of, as you say, as an episode or an intermission in it. Indeed, and it can itself just become a consumer item. You know, Stella yes. plus package holidays plus poem plus symphony. You know, yes. all along on, on the same plane of classification, as it were. Um, yes. And for many people, art is very obviously a consumer item. I mean, that's something that comes out quite strongly in the book. This. I suppose it goes back to this sense of losing the biological plot that almost, well, any appetite can be, as it were, perverted and turn into an end in itself or a, a pursuit that distorts the rest of life. Or you quite often mention collectors, people who collect things, be they sexual experiences or, or, or train registration numbers. And this, this sense of these appetites turning into something else, which takes us down an unhelpful path, is, is one which seems to run through several of your chapters. Yes, I mean, I think all of our desires, and we are probably human beings, as human beings, we're uniquely those animals who desire things rather than really have appetites for them. All of our desires can certainly be reduced to rapacious appetites. I mean, mm. the most obvious one, of course, is, is sexual desire, which can become um, an endless pursuit of a multitude of sexual experiences, one after the other, in which other people are simply reduced to consumer items. Now, from what, what we've, we've just been saying, it might sound a little as though you sympathise with the views of someone like John Gray, who, who sees man as homo rapiens, some, someone who's, who's simply a, a creature of you know, limitless selfish desires and, and, and wolf to other men. But, but, but really, you, you, don't, you wouldn't put yourself in, in, in that camp at all, would you? Absolutely not. He's my bait noir amongst thinkers. I think he denigrates humanity to an unbelievable degree. And if we really did believe what he said about each other, then I think we treat each other even worse than we do. I think we have, within human beings, there is the capacity for, the huge capacity to be good, to overcome our appetites, to overcome our own self-centeredness, which is not matched in other animals. But also there's a capacity to be evil in the way that's not uh, matched in other animals. John Gray focuses on the uh, capacity of evil. I would say we have both of those capacities within us. And we certainly need to celebrate our, uh, our greatness, our ability to produce huge monuments of collective endeavor, which are not matched in, 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 in the animal world. If we don't celebrate what we've achieved so far, we will assume a rather negative attitude to ourselves and more importantly, or more likely to our fellow men, which is potentially very dangerous. I've seen times in history when human beings have regarded other human beings as simply rival animals and the results are not very pretty. We've talked about fairly elevated things like, like art and, and philosophy, but in the final chapter, you, you, you return to, I suppose, what is the, the big question about hunger. I mean, we, we live on a planet on which a billion of us are overweight, and the best part of a billion of us are malnourished and in serious danger from hunger. And so the question of hunger is not just a, 
a hypothetical or an intellectual one. It's got it's got very real life, real world consequences. I wondered how you began to to conceptualize the future in such a in such an environment because it's obviously a, a a question which you've you've pondered in 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 some detail. I mean, how did you how did you approach that question of how how we if you like, bridle what seems to be at the moment unbridled consumption in in parts of the world and and starvation in other parts. This seems to be the most important question. Probably a hundred people have died during the course of our conversation of starvation mm. or its effects, and most of those will be children. And the truth is that we are less concerned about those people who are dying or currently starving than we might be. And I think it's simply because we're in the grip of our own hungers, and it's very difficult to sympathise other people's hungers, even when you're in the grip of your own, even when those hungers you're in the grip of. Are, are remote from the biological hungers uh, that the starving are, are condemned to suffer. So, I mean, the, the thing my book really is, 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 is ultimately to say, look, if we, the affluent, don't see what our hungers are, don't acknowledge their insatiability, don't see that further consumption is not going to produce the satisfaction we hope, then we will not be committed to making the world a better place for those who are still hungry. So understanding ourselves, understanding our hungers, uh, and managing them was probably going to be the key to a personally sustainable and a um, macro level sustainable commitment to non-growth and to reduce growth in, in those areas of the world which are affluent, which will hopefully make the planet more likely to be habitable longer in the uh, distant future, but also make life better for those for whom it is hell on earth at the moment. In your final chapter, you talk about embracing and profiting from those pleasures we have as a as opposed to this limitless desire for more and more and i i wondered whether you thought it was fair to to characterize that as a quasi religious sentiment the desire to i suppose count one's blessings and and be grateful for what one has i guess it is a sense of gratitude is not too far from the sense of piety and i think uh, that's true although i personally don't have any specific religious beliefs nor am likely to but I do believe that there is that sense of astonishment and amazement at what is and what one has and its complexity and its beauty, which is, I guess, overlaps in some respects with uh, the feeling that people, the feeling of piety that some people have who have strong, strong religious beliefs. I think the whole business of, of as we were, enjoying what we have is a totally non-puritanical and it seems to be therefore more sustainable approach to reducing consumption. It's a sort of hedonistic approach to reducing consumption. I think there has to be uh, some kind of connect between individuals who feel, as more and more individuals do, that something has to be done with our rising consumption and the drive to ever greater expansion, and, and government policy. At the present, there is quite a serious disconnect. So although people have quite strong sentimental feelings towards preserving the planet and recognizing the needs of people in the developing world, when the price of petrol jumps up by 30%, then there are cries of woe and so on. Mm. But there has to be some way, it seems to me, in which uh, we can look at, uh, again at the connection or reconnecting the goodwill and individual conscience of um, the people and uh, policy. And I think that's not happening at the moment. So, but in the end, it's got to come from both parties. There has to be great leadership and there has to be a population of people who are willing to be led uh, in, 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 in a long path that may lead to reduced consumption, but actually a, a, a better quality of life. The big challenge, it seems to me, is sustainable non-growth, because when an economy stops growing, the word gets around that it's stagnant, and uh, there's loss of confidence and so on and so forth.
managing non-growth, I think, is going to be one of the great challenges mm. uh, for uh, visionary governments. I was talking to Professor Raymond Tallis about hunger, his latest book, published by Acumen at £9.99. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe free of charge to future editions of the programme. Just type Podularity into the search box on iTunes. The Podularity website has many other podcasts to explore. You'll find it at podularity.com. You can also leave comments there and suggestions for future programmes. I hope you'll join me for the next programme, in which I'll be talking to Andrew Kahn about Russia's national poet, Pushkin. Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.